It's Friday, September 16th. I'm Pam Jones. The city's Department of Public Works was raked over the coals at a hearing last night on its handling of the E. coli water crisis. Today, Mayor Brandon Scott addressed the fallout on WIPR's Midday. A trial delay for Baltimore's outgoing top prosecutor. A hearing Monday could mean freedom for convicted murderer Adnan Syed. The union, representing thousands of University System of Maryland employees, brought their grievances to college. Park today. Baltimore's Health Department lays out a comprehensive plan to fight monkeypox, and the dissension continues over how to give Baltimore County teachers a promised pay raise. It's the Daily Dose from WIPR, our latest reporting on Maryland's COVID-19 response and the local news of the day, made possible by GBMC Healthcare. A Baltimore judge has scheduled a hearing for Monday to consider the joint request from prosecutors and defense attorneys to set free Adnan Syed, according to the Baltimore Banner. Syed, whose murder case received international attention with the hit podcast Serial, has been serving life in prison for the 1999 murder of his ex-girlfriend and classmate at Woodlawn High School. He could be set free on Monday if the judge agrees to the request. The federal perjury and mortgage fraud trial of Baltimore City State's attorney Marilyn Mosby is now scheduled for March 27th of next year. The judge ordered the trial postponed after the late addition of defense witnesses and to give prosecution time to find expert witnesses. Jury selection is slated to begin March 23rd. Prosecutors say Mosby lied when claiming a COVID hardship for an early withdrawal from her retirement account without penalty and failed to disclose an IRS tax lien. The Baltimore City Council Rules and Legislative Oversight Committee criticized the Department of Public Works handling of the Labor Day E. coli crisis and called for changes at a meeting Thursday. WIPR's Bethany Raja reports. City Council Member Isaac Schleifer said he was disgusted at how the agency informed the public about the contamination via Twitter the morning of September 5th, even though the first positive samples were gathered that Friday. When parents were mixing their baby's formula with powder that was possibly mixed with contaminated water. DPW Director Jason Mitchell said the crisis communications in these situations must be approved by the Maryland Department of Environment, and that didn't happen until 10.30 p.m. Sunday. On Monday, September 5th at 7.45 a.m., the public message was posted on Twitter next door, and at 8 a.m., community liaisons began door-to-door canvassing. Mitchell promised to improve communications at the agency. Bethany Raja, WYPR News. Mayor Brandon Scott addressed the fallout on midday with Tom Hall today. This was a very isolated incident that was caught as a result of DPW's routine testing, and we were able to resolve it in a very timely fashion. Uh, But you also learn a lot. An initial water boil advisory was a precaution really to protect the the safety of of, of our residents and consumers, right? Even though uh, we know that folks in many of those areas never had a positive test. When you think about the southern portions of the city and even southwest in Baltimore County, this was about being precautionary. Uh, these these happened. We know that uh, after a water main break in Montgomery County in August, they also had a, a, a water boil advisory for, for an area uh, uh, that they had to make sure that people were able to drink the water. So what exactly happened first and when as officials became aware of the contamination? 
the first test uh, is one that immediately, per protocol from MDE, you retest to make sure you don't have a, a false test, right? That's the first thing that you have to do. Now, I think your listeners, would, would, this information is critically important. The tests take 24 hours to come back, right? And then also what has to happen is that what, what has to happen uh, uh, on at Sunday night, at 8 p.m., uh, we learned the uh, initial potential impact area was four to four to block five block radius. At 9:30 p.m., uh, MDE approves the outreach strategy and the notification methods. At 10 p.m., the health department we notified Future Care Sandtown. At 10:33 p.m. on Sunday, uh, MDE approves written communication. Uh, we did some water deliveries overnight. And then what happens is, again, the, as you know now, Tom, the next morning is when all the other communication goes out, that we're we're sending out next door, we're doing, the, you know, the tweets, people are on the ground in that initial impact area doing door knocking, boots on the ground. Throughout the day on Monday, the, the we're talking with MD and they we talk about expanding into that larger that larger area of a water boil advisory, and that's where that comes in later in the day. As for handling future crises of this type, Mayor Scott says. What we're going to be doing is making sure on I end, and I, you know, even spoke to some folks at the state level about this, on how we can uh, do everything on I end to get information to them faster so that we can get it approved faster, right? Because you, when you're talking about things like this, and I think, Tom, it's what for you and for other folks, we should be also thinking about like that initial area was very, very, very small, and and uh, outreach in a small block area radius like that, like that, is a lot different than that larger advisory area that we later had to do, which requires a whole lot more work. So when you when uh, the discussions are now about then change to having this larger area, that's when we decided to open the emergency operations center bring in folks, not just from the city, but from the surrounding counties and other areas to be on board so that the state had their their emergency management folks there so that we will be working this like a true emergency event. Scott also spoke to whether he feels there needs to be changes in the state's protocols at all. No, no, it's the science. I think that's, you, you follow the science. and Because people were drinking water for 24 hours that had, uh, there was ample evidence of E. coli infection in, in the water. And, and there was almost 24 hours between Sunday and Monday where people were using and drinking that water. The boil advisory didn't come in until the the afternoon, 4.30 in the afternoon on Monday of Labor Day. So people were, were using that water. Was it safe for people to be using that water at that time? Well, I think... That- Tom, what I'll say is this, this, I can't, I'm not going to talk about state regulation. That's not my position, right? Uh, I think that what we have to do is continue to, to change as much as we can, right? So what I said yesterday, what our folks said yesterday, what I'll say to you, things that we're going to be doing, right? No one that, to my knowledge, no one across the state puts out consistently uh, uh, their testing results. We're going to be doing that every month so that people can see it, right? Uh, We're also, when there is an event like this, we're going to be using our text alert system, things that we now know that we can do in a quicker fashion. We're going to be getting information to them. But I think it's also critically important for us to to be reminded that we have been, uh, we have not seen people become sick from this, right? And the DPW had been out and doing work, making sure that we can 
fixed leaks, fixed valves, flush out systems, doing all the things that we, the chlorination, all the things that we needed to do to make sure that the that what was in the system got out of the system. You can hear more of Tom's conversation with Baltimore Mayor Brandon Scott by going to middays at WIPR.org. Mayor Brandon Scott announced today that local lawyer Justin Williams will be the new deputy mayor for community and economic development. In his new position, Williams, a partner with the Baltimore law firm Rosenberg, Martin and Greenberg, will oversee 14 agencies responsible for neighborhood development and revitalization, housing, planning, workforce development and tourism. AFSME, the union representing over 5,000 employees of the University System of Maryland, rallied on the College Park campus this morning. They are demanding a fair contract that applies to all universities in the system. WIPR's education reporter, Jacana Collier, reports. Saul Walker, a multi-trades chief at UMD, led fellow workers and union organizers into the University System of Maryland's Board of Regents meeting. The union is demanding increased wages, emergency leave, and safe work conditions. Walker said employees have been forced to work with a limited supply of PPE equipment in mold-infested buildings and in extreme heat. He remembers one summer in particular. They turned the air conditioner off when the workers went in to clean up. So while they're in that cleaning, you got 110 degrees in there, I mean, and they're working hard from that morning to that evening. The Board of Regents did not respond to the union's bargaining requests at the meeting. Jakina Collier, WIPR News. Nutria, those big rodents with the yellow teeth that have chewed up thousands of acres of vital eastern shore marshes are finally gone from Maryland, state and federal officials announced today. The varmints were introduced to the Delmarva Peninsula in the 1940s for the fur market, but became a nuisance decimating the marshes important to wildlife. It took 20 years to get rid of them through a joint state and federal operation known as the Chesapeake Bay Nutria Eradication Project. Snow days or no days, kids love them. Working parents, not so much. The Baltimore County Public Schools is seeking the input of parents as it considers a move to get rid of them in favor of using in-person learning when there's inclement weather. An email has been sent to Baltimore County parents and guardians seeking their input into how the district should handle inclement weather during the school year. Responses are due back to BCPS by September 23rd. State health officials are continuing to keep a close eye on the spread of COVID-19. As of yesterday, Maryland's Department of Health has confirmed more than 1.2 million cases statewide. The state recently surpassed 15,000 COVID-related deaths. Hundreds of people remain hospitalized with the virus. Baltimore's health department is in the process of increasing the number of clinics offering the monkeypox vaccine. However, at-risk communities are still concerned about accessibility. WIPR's health reporter Scott Massioni explains. 
It's been more than a month since the federal government declared a state of emergency surrounding monkeypox. Baltimore's initial response was to canvas as many high-risk people as possible about vaccines and make them available in a few clinics. Now the city's moving into the next phase of its response. Baltimore Health Commissioner Letitia Jarasha says that phase includes making the monkeypox vaccine available at medical centers specializing in sexually transmitted infections and federally funded clinics for high-risk people. In this phase, we're expanding our efforts to distribute vaccine to additional clinical partners. As mentioned, this includes our Ryan White clinics. We will continue to evaluate our internal capacity to expand vaccine distribution after our initial reallocations to these groups are made. In addition, we're pursuing contracting services to expand our capacity to provide MPX vaccine. And we're continuing to vaccinate our patients that we know are high risk. Despite efforts to expand capacity, vaccine availability is in short order and the health department's prioritizing those most at risk. The city opened a web portal earlier this month where people can pre-register for vaccinations as they become more available. More than 500 people have signed up already. To date, Baltimore's received 725 doses from the state of Maryland. 689 of those are allocated or been put to use. The other 31 are being saved for people who come in close contact with the disease. Baltimore City Council Health, Environment and Technology Committee Chairwoman Danielle McRae says she's cautiously upbeat about how the health department's handling the issue. My main concerns are just making sure that we have a vaccination and outreach strategy that is focused on equity and the populations who need it. This is something that's just very important for our city um, to have, and I want to make sure that the right information is being communicated to the people who need it. I'm optimistic about the strategy from the health department that we heard today about their response. It's not just about vaccinations, it's about contract tracing as well. Those most at risk for monkeypox include men who have sex with men and people with multiple sexual partners. Nairi Phillip, the community development organizer at Baltimore Safe Haven, says the vaccine is hard to come by. To my knowledge, the vaccinations have not been readily available at all. I know people have had to go out of the city in order to get the vaccine, which I think is ridiculous considering our city has over 600,000 people in it. And so I think that at the very least, we should have enough resources to be able to get those who want to get vaccinated, vaccinated. More than 170 people in Baltimore have been diagnosed with monkeypox so far. Phillips said she's also concerned about the stigma that's being attached to the LGBTQ plus community. She likened the issue to the AIDS epidemic in previous decades. The biggest issue that I see with monkeypox is the way that it's being framed. I think it's not as bad, the stigma, just because of the fact that there's already a vaccine for it. It's related to something that we have a vaccine for, and so it's been a little bit easier to treat. The stigma makes people afraid to interact with LGBTQ people because they think that we're disease-ridden. Philip warned that only focusing on the LGBTQ plus community leaves out other people susceptible to the disease who may have more clandestine same-sex encounters and could pass it on to their heterosexual partners. Scott Massioni, WYPR News. Baltimore County school system's latest plan to pay for promised teacher pay raises appears to be in trouble with both the county executive and leaders on the county council. WIPR's John Lee reports an average pay raise of around 8% for educators hangs in the balance as the school system and the county government remain at odds. 
The school system's latest proposal, which WYPR obtained through a Freedom of Information Act request, hinges on the county giving the schools $167 million additional dollars over five years. School officials also promise $16 million in cuts next year to go towards paying for the salary increases, which over five years are expected to cost more than $500 million. County Executive Johnny Oshevsky says the money for the raises should largely come from cuts the school system makes to its $2 billion budget. At first glance, uh, it appears that rather than doing that, uh, there's just a, a small portion that actually comes from savings within the existing budget, and it appears that a lot of what's being asked, uh, at least on the county side, is, is asking our residents to shoulder a, a big burden of that. Democratic Councilman Tom Quirk, who chairs the council's Spending Affordability Committee, doesn't like that the school system and teachers union agreed to the pay raises after the county's budget was passed. That's why the money for the raises isn't there. Quirk says imagine if every county department did that, ask for more money after the budget is a done deal. He says what the school system did is highly inappropriate and unprecedented during his 12 years on the council. Oh my gosh, that would be the most fiscally reckless and irresponsible budget ever. It's a real quick way for a county to go down the tubes if we started doing these things on the fly. County Council Chairman Julian Jones agrees. This proposal came in literally less than two months after the budget had passed. So the timing is, you know, is, is, is very difficult to swallow. Another part of the proposal county officials don't like, it relies heavily on using tens of millions of dollars in projected budget surplus money in coming years. But there could be a catch-22 regarding that. A portion of the budget surplus is due to unpaid salaries from teacher vacancies. If you increase salaries, theoretically, there'll be fewer vacancies causing the budget surplus they're counting on to shrink. Both Quirk and Oshevsky say relying on hoped-for surpluses is a dangerous way to do a budget. Oshevsky says his budget analysts are studying the proposal in advance of a meeting next week with school officials. We'll have more to say after both talking with them and also doing that deep dive with our budget team. The school system denied WIPR's request for an interview about the budget proposal, but in a statement said it is fiscally sustainable. At Tuesday night's school board meeting, Superintendent Darrell Williams defended it. We're grateful to our funding partners and committed to coming together to find solutions that are both fiscally responsible and financially meaningful to our hardworking employees. At that school board meeting, TAPCO, the teachers union, put on a full court press for the promised raises. TAPCO representatives held up to the board half a dozen reams of paper more than six feet long with 3,000 names of members demanding the pay raise be honored. Christine Phillips, who teaches Spanish at Woodlawn High School, says it's her dream job, but she doesn't know if she'll be back next year. The least this board, the county council, and the county executive can do is fund our raises. We are underpaid in comparison to surrounding districts, and we simply deserve more. We are pulling the weight of hundreds of vacancies, and if you don't compensate us, we will leave. TAPCO President Cindy Sexton says the leverage the union has is that the school system can't lose 1,000 educators like it did last year. She says that is unsustainable. John Lee, WIPR News.
We cover the news of the day here on The Daily Dose, but it's also a platform for listeners like you. Got a thought or a story you want to share about life in the era of coronavirus? Leave us a voicemail to play on an upcoming episode. The number, 410-235-6060. We've also got a button on the WIPR app, so you can record a voice memo that way, too. Just tap Daily Dose comments on the app or give us a call. The number again, 410 235 6060. The Daily Dose is brought to you by WYPR, made possible by GBMC Healthcare. Many thanks to my news team colleagues Rachel Bay, Shekinah Collier, John Lee, Scott Massioni, Joel McCord, Kristen Mossbrucker, and Bethany Raja. The executive editor of The Daily Dose is Danielle Irby. If you have a scoop or suggestion for this podcast, my social media hangout is Twitter at That's Pam Jones. Remember to be courageous and stay curious. I'm Pam Jones. Thanks for listening.